Hi, welcome back to another episode of Appalachian Anglican. I'm Caleb, and I'm here with Alex. Good morning. And also here with Father Daryl. Hey guys, good to see you. So today we're actually going to be talking about the liturgy, and we're going to be finding out more about that. That sounds good, Caleb. So I kind of shared you got with you guys my uh, journey into Anglicanism, and I still hang out with some friends that I grew up with in a evangelical charismatic tradition. People that I run into still, I tell them what I'm doing and tell them I'm in the ordination process with the Anglican Church of North America, and I'm in seminary, and a lot of people say, Alex, wow, that is a uh, whole different uh, thing that you're doing. Uh, Are you saved? <laughs> right. I, I've gotten that, and... <laughs> You we're going to bring up the uh, L word. So this is kind of how people say it to me. They're like, Alex, they have uh, la, la liturgy. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of funny because I get that a lot from people that didn't grow up in a, uh, in a liturgical church. And I get that. And they're like, wow, Alex, that is totally different. So Caleb had the idea. We were having lunch the other day. And he said, you know what? What is liturgy? So Father Daryl said, well, why don't we do our podcast about that? Right. And we will break it down for you. Well, when you hear that question like that, just over, I believe it was French fries, hamburgers, and subs. It was an assortment kind of lunch. <laughs> Some good old Jersey Mike's. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Jersey Mike's. And when you hear Damn. that, you know, that coin drop, what is liturgy? Well, I guess we got our next podcast, don't we, guys? Before we jump into looking at what the scripture says and, and talking about that, I thought I would just kind of throw out there the question to you guys. If you were to define liturgy to a friend, because you're both at various parts of the trail here. That's another thing for folks, you know. If somebody's becoming a Roman Catholic, they talk about swimming the Tiber or crossing the Tiber. Uh, if they say they're going to become Eastern Orthodox, they talk about, you know, swimming the Bosphorus, right, getting to Constantinople. Very often, in regular lingo, if someone's becoming Anglican or heading that way or they have become, the phrase walking the Canterbury Trail Maybe it's because we like all the extra syllables. We throw in a whole phrase there instead of... Yeah, I think I heard a joke like that on The Simpsons once. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I, I don't know about that one, but... I wasn't allowed to watch that since, growing up. Yeah. <laughs> since you guys are, are walking the trail at various parts here, <laughs> okay. if I were to say to you, what is liturgy? Throw your question back at you, Caleb. How would you phrase it to somebody who was asking you? No pressure. No pressure. Well, coming from someone who doesn't have a full understanding, I would say the liturgy is just what, like in the organization of priests, bishops, and deacons involved in there? Or is there more to it than that? Or That is a good, intuitive start. Yes, there's a lot more to it. But so I appreciate you telling me that I'm wrong <laughs> in a really nice way. Well, that's the subtitle for a podcast, While You're Wrong and So Are We. So, yeah. Right. So the way that I kind of describe liturgy, uh, especially in our service, because we're a liturgical church and we follow a liturgy, which means to me, you know, an order of service. You know, that's kind of the way that we've all been to a church where they have a bulletin, right? We have our bulletin, and this is just one of my explanations of it. I, obviously, you know, we're going to go way in depth, but, you know, we have our order of service, and it tells us what we're doing and how we're doing it. We, you know, we have our scripture readings, we have the, the sermon notes, we have prayers, everything that we're doing as a service. A lot of churches put their stuff up on the screen, we do that too, but we also have our our liturgy, and that's that's kind of the way that I describe it to people that are like, Alex, you're crazy, man. And I get that a lot for a lot of different reasons, but like that's that's kind of one of the, the simplest ways that I try to explain to someone that has no idea what it is. Yeah. Well, I'm going to drop a bomb on you right away. Are you ready? Uh-oh. Every church has a liturgy. 
So when people say, oh, you have a liturgy at your church, or someone says, I go to a liturgical church, well, every church has a liturgy. And here, here's where the bomb's going to like blast out even further. Life is a liturgy. The way we're going to use the word and the way we typically use it, we are referring to something definitive, right? right? Okay. But the word liturgy means the work of the people. So you can use the term, and we see this in some in a Greek texts outside of the Bible from the era when they, they talk about the work of the people. It's your daily liturgy, your daily work, your, the, the form, the rhythms of your life, okay? So you can have a generic side to it like that. And as we're talking about it, we want to say, because we want to focus on the church, all church is liturgical. Right. So you mentioned having a bulletin and having the order of service. Well, even the churches that don't have a written or printed bulletin or something on their screen or, or whatever, however they, they're disseminating the information, the order of the service is known to the people who are there who are faithful attenders to that congregation. You know that the pastor is going to give up or, or the assistant pastor, somebody, or the music leader is going to say, hi, good morning. And then they're going to give those comments about the weather and the drive-in that everybody had. There'll be an opening prayer, and then they're going to go into their power song. You know, the first song is like, yes, Jesus, he loves us. And the guitars are going wild, and, you know, <laughs> and the fog's blowing through the place. And not, not the Holy Ghost, but the fog is blowing through, and the lasers are going. Or if you're in a country church, you know, that's when Sister So-and-So is going to get up, and she's going to sing hymn 482, and I'll fly away, and couple more comments, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, then you get the three songs maybe, yeah. right? And then the pastor gets up, he has some kind of bridging prayer, and then he preaches for 20 minutes or an hour and a half, depending on what kind of church it is and where you are. There's the closing prayer and people leave. Many of those churches have an appeal to come down to the front, to the altar, you know, to raise your hand to get saved or receive prayer. That's the liturgy in those churches. There's an offering in there, give or take. That's the liturgy of that church. That makes sense. So are you saying that liturgy is not a, uh, a dirty word? It's not a dirty word. Okay. And, and I would recommend to everybody who says, my church doesn't have a liturgy, start paying attention to the regularly repeated structure in your church on a Sunday morning. And when you're doing that, write down how much is said by different people and put it in a book, and then compare that to the liturgy you find in the Book of Common Prayer for a Sunday Eucharist. And you'll discover that the church service you're sitting through is probably two to three times longer. And part of the irony in that is not only is that longer, if you were to print it, it's also projected as if it's more spiritual because they think they're being spontaneous. Hmm. And what we're going to see here looking at Scripture for liturgy is that it's hardly spontaneous. If anything, spontaneity is the reason why people are struck down. Yeah, that, <laughs> that's really true. So, yeah. so just some of the things that, you know, I know we're going to get into it, but like you said about the spontaneity, like, I feel like a lot of people tell me that it's not spiritual. You know, you're not making any room for the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, like, I know it's definitely not the case. You know, we have, I mean, the Holy Spirit moves, Father, Son, Holy Spirit are moving during the whole service. And we, we recognize that. I just think there's a lot of misunderstanding. So even me, like, not that I, that I know it all, but been around for a couple of years now and by no means am I saying I'm an expert. And I'm look, I'm looking forward to hearing what, what else we have to say about this. What about you, Caleb? Uh, definitely. I think the spontaneity was one of the things I thought of. Cause yeah. even like, I think I was having a conversation with one of my friends cause he's not very, he didn't really grow up charismatic at all. And he was like, well, so what do you mean? Like you guys do the whole, like when the spirit moves and stuff. And I was thinking about it, I'm like, well, usually it happens after like third song of praise and worship. Right. 
And I was thinking back, I'm like, it's really, it's usually certain times. And he's like, so what do you, is it like, is that the designated time? I'm like, well, usually the person playing the music kind of just knows. And I was like, it happens a lot after the third song. That's right. And That's I was just true. like, I was thinking about that. I'm like, maybe it's not as spontaneous as people are claiming. I'm not trying to like be discouraging or anything, yeah. but I just, that's what I was thinking about even like to say it's not is there's still that structure that's there. And if it's really out of like the normal, like if someone started playing the first note and then all of a sudden something happened where like the spirits are moving, that would be weird. Yeah. Even though in a church where usually stuff happens. So it's, I think there is still that structure that exists. Yeah, it's just not sure. quite as realized, but it's still there. It's there. So Caleb, as a, as a new guy, new to this, would you say that, you, you know, the Holy Spirit does move and we give him ample time to do his work? Absolutely. I would say so. I think a lot of times we put limitations on when we think the Spirit can move. Yeah. Because for me, like, whenever we take our Eucharist, like, I feel the Spirit move in that. Yeah. Though it's, I'm not, and it's weird because it's not a time where like, I'm trying to even shoot out and search for it, but it's it's there. Like, you can come to it if you want to. And even when it's in praise and worship, the Spirit's still there on it. And it's it's in different ways, too. And I think also understanding what that is and what that means with the Spirit. It's a, it's a whole thing that has to happen, but definitely I do think there's ample time, given. A sense of comprehensive fullness. Yeah. 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 I think we all recognize this, that we're going to get a variety of practices in whatever church you're in. Right. So, like, sure. Like, I'm sure there has been places where they stifled the Holy Spirit move. And I'm sure that there's charismatic churches that did the same and vice versa. So, I mean, there's always, you know, in the, in the Christian realm, I'm holding my hands up as wide as I can. In the Christian realm, there's so many different practices. And, you know, that, I think that's kind of what we want to bring all this together. And Yeah, so let's, let's then start to look at liturgy because you're bringing up something, Alex, that uh, we differentiate in the 39 Articles, yeah. as a matter of fact. There is the... And remind me, guys, we need to do a podcast on authority, concepts okay. of authority. Okay. Okay. Structure and that kind of stuff. Because you've got infallible scripture. Scripture is infallible, right? But that doesn't mean there aren't other authorities. And so this is when we would talk about tradition with a capital T. Right. We would talk about traditions, lowercase t, and we talk about customs. And so there's a variety of ways that things are expressed based upon ethnic group, based upon locality, based upon language, all these kinds of things. We don't want to equate those things with scripture. Right. But we do want to recognize that some of the things that we think are spontaneously created and sprung by the Holy Spirit really aren't. They're cultural custom that people make use of to, sh to share with. But let's, let's come back to liturgy directly for a second, and I'll say this. Um, every church has liturgy. That's one. I, we, just, we were talking about that. And every church, to be the church, is bound scripturally to certain necessities within it. Okay. Okay. So we said that liturgy is the work of the people. Right? That's basically how you would define it. Uh, in Numbers, we see that God begins to lay out, summing up what he's been giving in Exodus and Leviticus about the law, about the tabernacle and the priesthood. You mentioned the holy orders there a little bit ago, Caleb. We see the high priest, the priests, and the Levites. And this Levitical tribe and the various orders within it, if you will, constitute who cares and, and provides for and works around the entire sacrificial system, the tabernacle all the furnishings associated with it, the sacrificial system, all of that, in the midst of all Israel, because all of Israel is engaged in the liturgy, and there are designated officers that fulfill certain roles within all of Israel, okay? Now, why is this important? Because that's the Old Testament. Well, because that exact same word, liturgy, is used by Luke in Acts 13 too, when he says that the elders or the priests in Antioch, which would include Barnabas and Paul and three others, that they were ministering to the Lord, 
with prayer and fasting. But the word ministry there isn't just like a generic term, liturgy. There's a liturgical form and order that exists within the early church that they're making use of. We're not going to have time to get into specifics on that this morning, but just to say that it's there. I know I first came to that realization because I was reading a um, commentary on, on the book of Acts, and the commentator was a fellow by the name of Yaroslav Pelikan, mm-hmm. who was a Lutheran who became Eastern Orthodox. When he was commenting on Acts 2, he, he pointed out that the early church gave themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, which is the Eucharist, to the fellowship, and to the prayers. So it's not just generic prayer that they're engaged in, but the prayers. And he summed up the entire liturgical life of the church as the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, the Eucharist, the fellowship of people who have been baptized, made part of the body of Christ, the prayers. Right. right? Well, let's, let's go back to liturgy then. We see that in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews sums up so much of the liturgy in his letter. In chapter 1, verse 7, get this, the angels have a liturgy. There's an angelic worship, angelic liturgy. In one fourteen, you could say liturgical spirits. You could translate it that way. When it says that there are uh, ministering spirits who have been sent to serve those who are inheriting salvation, to inherit salvation. Hmm. The word ministering spirit there is liturgical spirits. Start tying these threads together. When should we expect interaction with angels, right? And we preserve this in our Eucharistic service. What does the celebrant say? Lifting our voices with angels and archangels. And all the company of heaven. It's right there. So it's preserved in the text of the liturgy, the teaching of Scripture. We see in chapter 8, Hebrews 8, 2, Jesus is the liturgist. He's the minister. He's capital L, liturgist. That's him. We'll jump into Revelation here in a minute, but we see that even in the book of Revelation, where he's standing as the high priest in the midst of the lampstands. And then we see in 8, 6, Jesus' work. He has a more excellent liturgy. We see that happening. So Hebrews, and we could go into more in Hebrews, but just to point out that the idea that the Old Testament was liturgical, but the New Testament isn't, is a category error that has radically distorted what it is to be Christian for so many people. So I guess it'd be safe to say, I mean, obviously if it's done in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we probably should be doing it too. We should be, yeah. (laughs) Right? Yeah, at least there's some reasoning for it. Well, the question we have to ask ourselves is when did the church stop and why? And what you're going to discover is, quote, the church didn't. Right. But there are portions that have in the past few hundred years because they they just haven't known. And so part of what we're doing even in our podcast is throwing this out there across the hills of Appalachia and whoever else wants to listen. But to say, hey, guys, the church is bigger than us, right? Let, right. Let's sink deep into this this real living tradition because tradition isn't just dead memory. Right. Tradition is the memory of the Holy Spirit in the church right now. So that, that's on liturgy itself. Well, here's how I want to kind of start to tie this together between the covenants, because we need to think canonically. Genesis to Revelation, what's the Bible say about something? In the Old Covenant, you guys feel free to answer back here. How did you become an Israelite if you weren't born one? Circumcision. Yeah. Right. Okay, what if you were born to Israelite parents? How did you become one? You were one, and then you became part of the covenant when you got circumcised on your eighth, eighth day, right? Yeah. So from infancy as a kid. Right. right. The early church never debates baptism, whether it should be applied to children. What they debate is, do you baptize a child on the day of his birth or on the eighth day? Okay, that makes sense. Okay. Because they're preserving the continuity of the covenants. Well, as an Israelite, how did you draw near to the Lord and engage in worship? You would go to the tabernacle. You go to the tabernacle, and eventually the tabernacle becomes the 
temple. Temple. Yeah. Okay. So you that's how you drew near to the Lord, whether uh, it was a Nazarite vow, you would take specific vows, right? Or you would go in with your offering, peace offering, guilt offering, burnt offering, sin offering, whatever's going on. Offer to the priest. The priest offers it, sprinkles blood and water. I mean, there's all the ceremony connected with this. Somehow or another, people go now and they read the New Testament and they say, oh, well, Jesus fulfilled all that. It, it, that doesn't apply. Or it applies to us spiritually. And when they say spiritually, they've stripped out the natural component of it. Right. But as we've just looked in Hebrews... We've looked in, in, the, in the book of Acts. Uh, no, there's some material, physical form to it still. And so this is where liturgy and the sacraments are tied together. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. When Jesus is sitting there at the Last Supper, and he says to them, to the apostles, this is the new covenant. covenant. He is summing up all of the old covenant, fulfilling it, and then now giving the new covenant to the apostles, and they're going to give it to us. In the same way that all of Israel and all of her worship revolved around that tabernacle and the temple, in the New Testament, everything's revolving around that Eucharist. I know, chew on it. Think about <laughs> I'm it. Thinking. I, I, yeah, I'm thinking. Yeah, I'm thinking about mean, it. We've said that, and we've talked about that, and, you know, that's, that's heavy. It is. I mean, that's, it makes sense. But like I said in my introduction in the very beginning, that's kind of been where my journey is, is just really deepening what I believe in my Christian beliefs. Like, I believe that. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've read the stories. I've, you know, I've read it. And for me, I think that's, you know, especially the Eucharist is why I really feel drawn into, like, I feel like I'm called to be a priest because of that. And that just, you're just adding more layer to that. And that's, I appreciate that. It gives it more explanation. I think it was when, if I remember correctly, when you were even talking about how it was like the first time, the only time that covenant, like this is my new covenant, is mentioned in the Bible, is when Jesus is literally talking about the chalice, the actual... In the Gospels, you, right. Yeah. yeah. Which yeah, so, kind of just, you know, it's like, so what is really being done here? In the same way that the ministry, the Levitical ministry, the Levitical liturgy existed, and to, you need people to perform a function built around sacrifice... In the same way that the Levites were, were centered around that tabernacle, the Holy of Holies and all that was associated with it. In the New Covenant, the ministry of the New Covenant, we are ministers of reconciliation. The ministers of the New Covenant, the apostolic ministry, is centered around the Eucharist. When Jesus institutes the Eucharist, when he institutes the New Covenant, when he institutes the New Liturgy, because this is how we know the Eucharist, the bread and the wine, are becoming the body and blood, is because of what he says and what he does when those things are preserved. That's the word anamnesis, and we'll, we'll talk about that another time. But Jesus is establishing that liturgy so that Paul talks about it even in 1 Corinthians. He says, that which I have received, I have passed on to you. So he's talking about his role apostolically as a minister of the new covenant, a priest of the new covenant, which he does use that language in different portions in his, his letters. He's giving to them the fulfillment of the type and the shadow for Israel now conveyed to the church. And we've got to let that really sink down deep into our psyche, into our souls, into our hearts. Because when you look at so much contemporary Christian ministry, it's not about that. And so then we have to say to ourselves, wow, if we're going to really be biblical, we're going to have to be liturgical. Yeah. The Kind of what I think of is, um, you know, reading the Old Testament and reading through the Levites and priests and all that stuff, you know, when people stepped outside of the proper liturgy, I feel like some pretty bad stuff happened to them. You know, some people died, 
Some people got swallowed up by the earth. Some people just, right. you know, a lot of stuff happened. So, and this is just kind of what I'm thinking of. Like, if it meant something then, I mean, I guess it means even more so now. Would that be right in my thinking? Yes, yes. Except that the difference is between the covenants. And we see Luke tying this together with us with the account of Ananias and Sapphira. Okay. That's, He's paralleling yeah. Nadab and Abihu. Okay, that that's makes sense. That's part of what's going on. Because in the new covenant, Christ is the liturgist, right? right. He's the one that's instituting the new covenant. So one of the main differences, and there's many, but one of the main differences or discontinuities between the Levitical priesthood and, say, a Christian priest today is, is that we are priests because we're sharing in Christ's. Okay. So every, every member of the body, the work of the people, is part of Christ and engaged in the life of God, right? Okay. In the life of, of the church, in the life of Christ. Right. There's a distinction there because all of Israel is engaged in the work of the tabernacle, but they're not all there offering the sacrifice. And you parallel that to the new covenant. There's a blending over of those two. Does that make sense, or is that more confusing? It makes sense. I, I get it. That makes sense. Okay. So in the Old Covenant, we have... Uh, let me just give you a couple outlines, about a couple points real quick about Old Testament priests. They've got to be Levite. They are responsible for bearing the ark and the holy things. The Levites are. They minister liturgy to the Lord. They bless the people. They maintain the tabernacle and then eventually the temple. They receive the tithes and the offerings. They oversee the purification procedures. They judge in dispute, and they teach the law. If you were to ask the average Christian today, hey, what is the responsibility of your pastor? They would say, to teach the Bible. That's one aspect. Because as you pointed out, Alex, we're under the new covenant. The difference between the old and the new covenant, as far as we're concerned right now, isn't that God has changed. Right. right. It's that he extends grace for repentance now, whereas under the law, judgment was much swifter. Living under grace means his discipline and his judgment, one of the things it means, put it this way, isn't immediate. But it's more terrifying. Right. I feel like we're held under the same, I don't want to say scrutiny, but the same like kind of pressure. Like we still have to live that way, you know, but we might get away with it for a little bit, if what, that makes sense. First Corinthians 3, Paul says, whoever destroys God's temple, God will destroy. And there the temple is a reference to the unity of the church. Right. And he's saying if anyone disrupts the unity of the church through their false teaching, through their rejection of the doctrines of Christ, through the expectation of a life that conforms with him, they will be destroyed. But here's the catch on that day. Right. Meaning okay. it may not be disclosed right now. Yeah. And this is really tough for Americans because you don't have to be orthodox. Like you don't have to be biblically accurate to build a ministry in the United States. Yeah, you, you just need kinda, to be entrepreneurial. Kind of just do whatever you want, honestly. Yeah. This is for all of us to take an account here. Wait a second. Am I part of the historic continuity here? Are my, my leaders part of that historic continuity? And to say, well, I preach the Bible. Here's the thing, guys. The Bible didn't fall out of the sky. True. That's a big thing that even like when I think back on how I used to think kind of, I'd usually compare other religions to either Christianity, but I never really fully looked at Christianity. It's like I never made the connection between, even as I was talking to other people, as I started learning about it, when I'd ask them like, well, where did the Bible come from? Well, it was brought together, it was created. I was like, yeah, but when and where? And then I actually started asking those questions. I'll give you a good example. People are like, oh, it's just me and my Bible. Well, one, that's not going to work. Because if there's no church, because liturgy and church, all these things are connected, and I, I don't want to go down too many rabbit trails. Sorry to our listeners. But imagine for a second if you were to tell an Israelite who somehow or another saw the Ten Commandments. Now, I know they were inside of the Ark of the Covenant, okay? But let's just assume he sees the Ten Commandments in stone, and he's like, oh, wow, and he breaks out a pen, and he tattoos onto his, his palm of his hand 
that you know the Ten Commandments, right? <laughs> and then somebody turns it into a clay tablet, and then somebody else turns it into a papyrus reed book of the Ten Commandments. And the guy goes around and he says, "All I need is this." That's not true. Not at all. Okay, I see. Uh, no, that's because a good example. You, no. you need the high priest. You need the priests. You need the Levites. You need the sacrificial lamb. And if you're an Israelite, it's not, you can't offer the sacrificial lamb. If you're a Levite, you can't offer the sacrificial lamb under pain of death. But when we come into the New Testament, we just say, well, because we're all part of the body of Christ, and this is really bad egalitarianism here, we're all equal in the eyes of God, so we can all do the same things. Well, that's just not, that's not preserved in the Scripture. Case in point is all we got to do is look at the way Paul leads his churches, the way Peter does, the way James does, the way John does. They talk about this. I mentioned that list of things that we see about the priests in the Old Testament, but do you realize that the responsibilities given to the Levites are mentioned by Luke, that their responsibilities for deacons? Yeah. Because what is the temple today? Would it be either the Christ body or the church? It's the people. People, okay. The people and then the Eucharist. I mean, there's obvious overlap there because the Eucharist is what is nourishing us as the members of the body. But you need the members of the body to be praying and celebrating. the Eucharist. So they're, they're interdependency there. But we see that the deacons are given that responsibility. Luke spells it out for us in Acts 6. Yeah. We see that the ark and the holy things, caring for the ark and the holy things. Paul breaks out more detail about that. I've already mentioned that in 1 Corinthians 11. That they're to minister to the Lord, I mentioned that, except Acts 13 too, the elders, the priests, because elder and priest are the same word. They bless the people. Well, do we see the apostles doing that? Second yeah. Corinthians 13, right there. There's the blessing. Some of our morning and evening prayer, they end with the same blessing. Maintaining the temple and tabernacle. First Peter 5, you're built up like living stones. Responsibility of those in spiritual leadership is to care for those. Uh, tithes and offerings. Second Corinthians chapter 8. Paul's talking about receiving tithes and offerings. So, and we could go on to more and more. I mean, judging people, judging disputes. What's 1 Corinthians chapter 6 about? Settling those. Settling judgment, right? He says, why don't you get the least educated among you to deal with the issues instead of going to the world? So, liturgy is central to the church. It's the way we are identified as God's people. It's how we comprise the visible church right now on the earth. The liturgy, guys, is Jesus' Lord's prayer being answered on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. This is where it's going to get tougher. Are you guys ready for it to get tougher? Uh, I hope so. Oh. Let's hear it. Let's, let's see. <laughs> okay. Hebrews tells us Jesus is the chief liturgist, right? Right. Chief minister. He's got a more excellent ministry. But where is it happening at? My first thought is heaven. Okay. How about you, Caleb? Where's Jesus' ministry happening at right now? Right now? Right now. Hopefully here on earth. I mean, I don't, maybe I don't understand the question. In heaven. Okay. In heaven. Yes, the Lord is working on the earth. But his, okay, okay, his work, he, he, the Hebrew says he ascends into heaven and offers through the eternal spirit his blood. Right. His once for all sacrifice upon the cross. Now, here's how it breaks out. Jesus dies how many times? Once. Just once. Just once. Forever. Never again. Once for all. Once for all, not just for all time, but once for all, meaning he can never die again. Right. Okay. Right. When he ascends into heaven, he takes that sacrifice into heaven that's eternally present. I'm picturing this, yes. Yes. So there he is as our high priest, as our king, as our prophet. He's there ascended into heaven, and he's eternally, what does John see in Revelation 5? The slain lamb and the roaring lion. It's an eternal reality. The liturgy is 
the church, the liturgy is how we are constituted as the church, reflecting the worship in heaven right now. What was the tabernacle? How was Moses commanded to build it? In the middle of everybody, is that what you mean? Like that, a, yeah. A very or just the different sections of it, like the three different sections. The way it's arranged, and then the the furniture that's in it. The location. What does the What does God tell him? Make sure you build it as you see it, as you saw it on the mountaintop, right. right? So Moses is seeing heaven, and he's commanded to build a tabernacle to represent it. And then when the temple is built by Solomon, here is this physical construct that to walk into the temple is to walk type and shadow into heaven. Okay. Christ ascends into heaven, and the outpouring of the Spirit takes the liturgy that we're celebrating from beyond type and shadow, so it's greater than the old, to the reality. So that to handle, to touch, to hold, the consecrated bread and wine is no longer to hold merely bread and wine anymore. We're talking about the body and blood of Christ. This is the reality. It's preserved for us in the liturgy. How, how does it begin? Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Yeah. Right? So that's the ascension right there. The church is entering into that heavenly session of Jesus right now. That's what's going on in the liturgy. Maybe you've never thought about that with Revelation, and I know we need to, need to start to wrap this up, but let me just say it this way. In Revelation chapter 1, Jesus appears to John on Patmos. What day is it? Oh, man. I'm going to guess Sunday. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Well, the Lord's day is the first day of the week. We know from the rest of the New Testament, we, like in Antioch, right? We know they have a liturgy. Right. We know in chapter 20 of the book of Acts that they break bread on the first day of the week, and Paul talks. So there's the Eucharist, and there's the Word, first day of the week, Sunday. In James 5, we know what else are they doing. They're confessing their sins. Right. They're receiving anointing with oil, and they're being healed and forgiven. And who's there? The elders, the priests. In Ephesians 4, Philippians 2, 1 Timothy 3, and 2 Timothy 2, we have examples of early Christian hymns, songs they would have sang, in conjunction with the Psalms. Hebrews 13.10, the writer says, we have an altar. So then when we get to Revelation 1.6, the very last book of Scripture, and we see John says, and I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. It's easy to see liturgically what's being summed up. So what does he see then on the Lord's day? Worship. He sees worship. He sees Jesus dressed as a high priest, standing in the midst of seven lampstands, and the lampstands are the churches. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah they're the churches. I was yeah. trying to think. The I was like, uh, right? Uh, right? It's like a uh, Bible study. What's, what's in his right hand? No, that I, don't, I don't know that. Oh, there are seven stars in his right hand, and okay. he says the seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches. Right. Okay. To the angel of the church of, and he lists them, you know, Ephesus, Smyrna, Thyatira, Pergamum, many of them. The angel being the person who preaches the word. Okay. Why would you write a letter to an angel? It's not, how are they going to read it to the congregation? So we have to keep this in mind with the revelation. So there, there he is in the midst of the church speaking to his people through the messengers, and the word that he gives them, preaching the word. That's how he's speaking to the church. When you go and then chapters two and three of those messages, chapter four, John gets called up into heaven. Now, after these things, he says, now after this, I heard a voice. He said, come up here. Some Bible commentators have said, oh, that, that means after the church age, there's a rapture. That's not what's happening in the text. He gets caught up into heaven to see more of what's going to be unfolded as it relates to those churches. Right. Okay. What's he, what's he see? He says, I saw a throne and someone sitting on the throne. 
and around the throne of 24 elders. What we're seeing there is the bishop and the priests. Right. There's a whole lot of history here I could go into unpacking. But if you just start working through the revelation, you're going to see really clear. There's, there's God on the throne. There's the priest. There's the Eucharist because the slain lamb, right? What's God have in his hand that Jesus takes? Was it the scroll? The scroll. So Christ starts to break the seals on the scroll so it can be revealed. What is the scroll but the word of God? Right. Who interprets scripture to us? Jesus. Jesus, by his it, death and resurrection. said he's the only one that can open the scrolls, right? That's, that's right. Okay. By his death and resurrection, he explains to us what the Bible means, which is why when we go back and we read about liturgy in the book of Numbers, we're not supposed to say, oh, that's what God did as a type and a shadow in history that doesn't apply anymore. No, we go back and we see this was a type and a shadow that Christ fulfilled and then gave to the church so we continue in right relationship with God. Mm. So what you're saying, Father Daryl, is that we should, and I know this is not quite what we're talking about, um, so we should really read Revelation as, you know, not just an apocalyptic event, because that's how traditionally for a long time, that's how I've read it. Well, we, we want to read it as an apocalyptic event. Correct. But apocalypse doesn't mean end of the world. Right. Not like the uh, famous modern books and right. videos Movie and all that stuff. And <laughs> right. Stuff. So, because that's for a long time, that's how I kind of read it. So, like, a lot of times I would just avoid it. I would just read Revelation and I would just kind of skim through it maybe once a year. And so, we need to look at it kind of differently, right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, we do. There, there's definitely a prophetic foretelling element in it. Sure. Right. That's there. Okay. Specifically to those seven churches. Right. And it's seven churches because it constitutes symbolically the whole church Catholic. Okay. Right? So that even the promises of blessing and judgment given to the seven churches are then explained in visionary form through chapters 4 and 22. Gotcha. Okay? But look at the liturgy in the Revelation. Right. I mean, the the angels are, are dressed in white robes. They're dressed in different colors. There's different colors around God's throne. There's the golden bowls of incense, there's the harps, there's, I mean, there's music, there's singing, all of this. This all sounds very familiar. Yeah. There's, there are martyrs where in chapter 6? Aren't they under the altar? Under the altar. This is why the historic churches have very often placed the pieces and portions of martyrs' relics in the communion table. Or wow. in some cases, completely built the altar table over top of a crypt. All of it's coming out of the scripture. Here's the thing. People are like, are you saying if we don't do that, we're not saved? What are you talking about? You guys have been in enough Bible studies with me that, that that's what happens. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that a lot. Yes. Yeah, are you saying we're not? No, how did, you, how did you get from that to this? But if we want to Im- embody the fullness of scriptural teaching, why would we reject these things? Yeah. Because there are great benefits and aids to the faith. It's to our devotion. So we see, let me, let me just kind of recap it. Okay. The liturgy on a Sunday morning with the Eucharist is the earthly presence of the heavenly reality. So that Jesus isn't being killed at every Eucharist and rise again, as some have erroneously taught in the past. Nope. What's happening is the whole church is being called up and the Spirit's been poured out. Yeah. So that now we're seeing the overlap of heaven and earth. So it goes back to what you started with by saying at the beginning of this, Caleb. I just kind of feel the Lord moving all the time in different ways in the service. Right. And it's supposed to be that way. So that when the scriptures are being read and the reader says the word of the Lord, that has more authoritative power behind it than even when the word was prophesied the first time when the scripture was being written. Wow. Especially if we're talking Old Testament type and shadow, because now it's fulfilled in Christ and now we have the reality. 
So what I'm hearing is that we're not necessarily coming to church to get things, which we do. We get blessed, of course. We receive. But we're there to worship the one true God. Is that safe to say that? Hebrews 12. You've not come to a mountain smoking with fire, but you've come to the city of the living God, to angels arrayed in festival clothing. That's what's happening. We we would draw near to him, and that's what's happening in church. That's what's happening in the Eucharist. Yeah. Because it is the body of Christ constituting the body of Christ, bridging heaven and earth. Well, let me, let, me, let me say it this way. A lot of church work today is built around the concept of missions, and that's good. We should be engaged in mission. But in the Bible, mission flows out of the liturgy. And even when we're concluding the service, send us out right. into the world. To do the work. To do the work you've given us to do. Right. Uh, just wrapping it up for me, for my thoughts, I, um, I've explained liturgy also in this way, like, I've been in services where, first of all, I'm gonna, I have a confession to make. Sometimes I'm in a bad mood on a Sunday morning for some <laughs> reason. Sometimes I might not necessarily want to come in and come in early and get ready for things. And, you, you know, you've, uh, we come to service. I'm always happy, Alex. I know I, you I are. I know you are, Father <laughs> Daryl. And I appreciate that about you. But we'll come into, you know, not specifically here, but in other services where I feel like I have to get myself ready. Like I have to drum myself up. I have to, you know, sing maybe louder in the songs and try to like get myself worked up like emotionally. And I, and I felt that way. And, and sometimes I leave in even in a worse mood. And that's happened to me a lot. You know, I don't think I have mental issues, but it, it, I don't want to say that it's, it's that. But, you know, I just kind of just I'm like, I'm not feeling this today. And, you know, I would feel convicted, of course, and everything. And there's times where I, I would come into services here. The service would start and maybe I'm in a bad mood and, you know, the scripture starts to get read because... I have been in, in services where not very much scripture is read, if any. And there's time we come here and, and we read an Old Testament reading, we have a New Testament reading, we have a gospel reading, and then obviously your your sermons are full of scripture and then there's just so much. The whole service and everything that we do is leading us and pointing us back to Christ. And that's that's one thing I enjoy about the service. There's nothing that we do, there's nothing that we have hung, there's no song that's just for show. In in the sense that it doesn't mean anything. Sure, it's show. But what we mean is it all points back to Christ. It all does. So when I'm sitting in these services, like even if I'm in a bad mood, the Holy Spirit is here. Mm-hmm. God is here. The triune God is here. And we are worshiping and acknowledging that his presence is here, whether we're in the mood for it or not. That's one of my favorite things. You know, you, you hit it, Alex. What's the, what is the opening acclamation in ordinary time? Blessed be God, the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the people say, and blessed be his kingdom now and forever. Amen. The service begins with an acknowledgement that we are here to liturgy, to worship, to serve the Almighty. We're not here so we can get our worship on and get our tank filled. (laughs) Right. Right. That happens. Yeah. And it happens. And that's that's the beautiful thing. I know that uh, one of the books that, you like to recommend a lot is for the life of the world by Schmemann. He says the liturgy starts when you get in your car to mm-hmm. come to church yeah. because you're turning your heart to the Lord as you're preparing. And I know, I don't know about you guys, you know, sometimes on Sunday mornings, that's where everything goes wrong. The car doesn't want to start. Your family's fighting with you. You're hungry. You're tired. All the things happen and you are trying somebody somewhere is trying to avoid you from coming to church. Yeah. <laughs> is that true Caleb no I know I feel it I see it I mean it happens to me too sometimes yeah I think it's but I think it's like you're saying it's just when you miss the point all those other things can kind of 
kick right? in. Because our hearts are turned to the Lord from the moment that we get in our cars to come to church. And that's where the liturgy starts. Absolutely. So I hope that answers the question and kind of ties together some threads. And people are free to pause this and look those scripture verses up. We didn't throw them out there just because. <laughs> Absolutely. I think it does. The biggest things is when you explain something like, what is liturgy in that way? or Because it's then, if that's what liturgy is, then why are you doing what you're doing? And I think really when you go through and start explaining in that way, like it's not just something that's made up or just something random that's just been applied into the church. There's actually references to it of why we're doing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So that way it kind of makes more sense and all that. Yep. Even the other things, like even whenever, what I always think of is like whenever I'm reading the Old Testament and I'm trying to bring it in with the New and to make them meet together, because that's what's happening. It's that transition that's happening, but it's the same thing. I always think of when Jesus uh, said that I didn't come to change the law, I came to fulfill it, right. and then actually answering what that means. But yeah, I think we definitely hit the topic pretty well. Maybe one day we'll talk about the actual parts of the, the liturgy itself, you know, and how those things are scriptural. You know, like the passing of the peace is not a time to greet your friend and talk about the weather. What does Jesus say about bringing your offering to the altar? Leave it there if you got a problem with somebody. That That's my yeah. term, but... Yeah. <laughs> so we pass the peace after the formal confession and absolution, and the people are giving the... Basically, if we were in the New Testament era and still kissed people, that'd be the holy kiss of peace. Basically, say, we are at peace with one another. Right. Let's go now to the altar of the Lord. Anyway. Well, definitely. I think we hit the topic pretty well. Uh, we have just a couple questions for this week. Our FAQs. Okay. One of the questions for this week was, why the robes? I think that's pretty relevant for liturgy, especially now. Why the robes? Yeah. So uh, that's a long, complex historical answer. Um, but we can abbreviate it, I think, with some highlights to say that God institutes the dress that the high priest has to wear and the priests. And if you do a study, of Genesis 1, and then you study the clothing that the priests have to wear, they're wearing colors reminiscent of Eden and paradise, right? Even so much so that you've got the menorah in the, in the tabernacle, the temple, which is recalling the tree of life. So you've got a whole lot of stuff going on that, that's a different topic. But to point out, the clothing that they're wearing is connected to the colors that are called for in the weaving of the tapestries for the tabernacle. That's maintained through the the history of Israel. When you come into the New Testament, we see that this is picked up in the Revelation because there they are still wearing these priestly garments, vestments, clothing, whatnot. Paul says to to Timothy, he says, bring the cloak. He asks for his cloak to be brought to him, uh, along with parchments and things like that. It's unlikely that Paul is saying, hey, guys, I miss my, my special blanket. (laughs) <laughs> or I need my, my special leather jacket, you know, with my Harley David, Harley Davidson symbol. <laughs> He's not asking for like his special clothing yeah. uh, in the sense like he, it's a personal favorite. A lot of commentators think he's asking for his, the garment he would have worn celebrating the Eucharist, the basis for the chasuble. Because the chasuble goes back to common Roman clothing. Think of like a, a poncho on a cowboy from yeah. yesteryear. But even as that fades out of, of Roman practice, it's still preserved in the church and the priests would wear them to signal themselves out to be distinct, when they were persecuted, they'd be arrested and the church could flee. And that's before things are legalized, the church is legalized. So you've got vestments and robes all through the Bible that are all part of liturgical worship, that are all part of early Christian practice. And you've got various customs, we talked about at the beginning, various customs and lowercase t traditions that shape that, you know? So 
stole, you know, what the priest wears, like the yoke of Christ. Well, in the Orthodox churches, that's they're together. They're not two bands that hang down, right? So you've got custom variations, but there's an overarching practice that these things, some of them go back into scripture. Some of them develop in the tradition of the church. Some of them are newer, like a priest's collar. That only goes back to the 1800s. So you've got some things that are really old, some things that are sort of old, some things that are brand new, but it's liturgical, it's, it's heavenly worship. The idea is to, to continually embody liturgically what's happening in heaven. Well, I think you kind of answered that question pretty well. We're kind of running out of time, so we're probably yeah, just going to have to stop at that one. Yeah, let's finish it up. I okay. Guess. Yeah. But thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening to Appalachian Anglican. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. Please send in any questions that you have. Yeah. Uh, where, what email do they did yeah, you want send, to get those? Yeah, send uh, any questions they, they would like answered this way, or I can just email them if they don't want it read out loud, to Daryl, D-A-R-R-Y-L, at ascension, A-S-C-E-N-S-I-O-N-W-V.org. Okay. Glad you were with us. Uh, we'll see you again next Friday. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Amen. Amen.